0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled "The Two Truths" by Lama Adam Berner. Lama Adam talks about the two truths using a chapter from Kalin Rinpoche's book *Luminous Mind*. Topics discussed include karma, interdependence, and emptiness. Sources include *Luminous Mind* by Kalu Rinpoche and *Karma: What It Is, What It Isn't, and Why It Matters* by Treleg Kyabgon. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Taksam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Columbus, Karma Takes Some Cholings, Sunday, 1130 Dharma Talk. Uh, I'm Lama Adam, and I'm going to be talking today about karma and interdependence. And um, we'll talk about both of those things. Uh, they're central to our discussion, but the actual theme of today is how we exp- our experience can be viewed from two different perspectives. So as I said, karma is a big part of this, but it's not really going to be the the centerpiece of today. So I do want to touch on it uh, briefly right here at the top to provide a little background on how and why it matters to this discussion. So the first thing to know is that karma can be hard to understand. Um, In fact, the Buddha said that for unenlightened beings like us, trying to understand the inner workings of karma would only cause madness and vexation. and. As Kensei Rinpoche recently said uh, in a teaching on karma, it's perhaps the hardest thing to teach, which makes me more than a little bit scared about today. But this is something so fundamental to the Buddhist path uh, and something that I have a great interest in. So I'm gonna give it a go. Uh, Karma is actually a a pretty common word in English now, even though in our culture, both its meaning and its intent are rather different than its meaning and its intent in a Buddhist context. To be specific about its meaning, when we talk about what karma is in the Buddhist context, we mean action. That's actually what the Sanskrit word means, is action. But what's a little different is that when we're talking about action in this context, it's in terms of not just the doing, but the results. So thinking of karma in this way, we consider both what we do or think, and what that's likely to lead to. And I know karma can take on sort of a a magical connotation in our culture, but that's not really a proper understanding. In fact, whether we believe in karma or not, we all utilize it to some degree all the time. Because just as we take actions knowing that they will lead to results, such as like uh, washing our clothes, uh, and expecting them to come out clean or taking a walk to increase our, our fitness, are also how we recognize that there are likely outcomes based on how we think, such as uh, planning a trip uh, or a work project uh, or um, knowing the intense effects uh, that can follow from falling in love or losing trust in someone. In these ways and and countless others, we take for granted the fact that our actions, both physical and mental, will lead to an outcome. So this is a simple way of looking at karma. It's not at all a complete picture, but it gives us a good starting point towards uh, demystifying what's actually somewhat commonplace, even in our Western culture. Now, in terms of the intent, of uh working with karmic theory first a couple misconceptions so for instance we may see someone doing something that we don't think is right we may say things things like um i hope karma gets him or that that uh terse three-word phrase karma is a so this is not the right way to, to think about this you know um because in this situation, they seem to be getting away with something evil right now. And we make this kind of dark aspiration that they'll pay for it later. And then we rejoice in the suffering we imagine them experiencing. And this is not at all the intent or the purpose of karmic theory at all. uh, Because we should never, ever wish for the suffering of anyone, regardless of how heinous or destructive their behavior is. It is true that negative actions lead to negative results but we should not use this as some kind of cudgel you know with which to abuse people who do things that we disagree with even if that whole process occurs in our minds similarly we may think of good karma in terms of what we need to collect like we need to get as much good karma as possible uh, we do stuff hoping to get good karma we tell others they they should do things because it will bring them good karma in that way It's possible that we can come to think that um, the point of karma is to collect as much of the good kind as possible and um, to not get any of the bad kind, and that's what will bring us to enlightenment. This is, again, not exactly the intent of karma. In fact, gaining only good karma is not the end of the path. That alone does not get us there. Uh, There's more to it than that. In fact, if we think of karma as a game, that we can win, like a game of uh, acquisition like Monopoly or something where you get all the money, you know, and, and everybody else loses all of it. When we think of it like this, we're never going to win. In other words, as long as we think karma is, is the whole story, we'll never escape suffering. That suffering, in this case, like the cycle of birth and death, which we call samsara or cyclic existence. In order to truly end samsara or uh, to truly end suffering, we must transcend karma by recognizing its actual nature, recognizing its emptiness, but also recognizing how it arises and how it manifests. In doing so, we recognize the mode of being of all things, ourselves included. So that's really the role that karma has in today's conversation. I do hope uh, to talk specifically about karma in greater detail at some point soon. In fact, there are several books um, I think I'd like to do for some sort of like karma club book study kind of thing. Uh, There's just so many beneficial ways of talking about karma. I think the format of today's talk could maybe be the most timely and important of those ways. But in the future, I'd also like to explore the idea of karma and freedom, how our circumstances now are determined by past actions but how our future is actually like completely open and determined by what we do right now. Also, there's the interrelation uh, of karma and ethics and morality and how good karma and bad karma are not determined by some kind of external arbiter, but instead by uh, which actions lead to true happiness and which lead to suffering. Someone asked me a very good question this week about the mechanics of karma, like where is our karma stored? And how does each individual karma travel between lives and, and come to fruition? And these are completely valid questions in a, a fascinating area of discussion. But I have to apologize to this person that uh, I will not be able to get into that today. It's just a little too far off the central theme of today's talk. But I would recommend to anyone who has a specific interest in karma to read a fantastic book by Trolle Rinpoche called, Karma, What It Is, What It Isn't, and Why It Matters. It's a, a really clear and uh, complete work for lay people like us. Um, it's one of the best that I've ever read on karma. And a good complement to that is a book by Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, it's a recently compiled book called The Future is Open, Good Karma, Bad Karma, and Beyond Karma. And as Trungpa does, he, he tackles this topic in such a uh, fresh and like expansive kind of way. Um, I often get the sense with his teachings that he's speaking like kind of like right past my deluded mind and directly to my wisdom potential. So it can be a little confounding sometimes reading his teachings, but I appreciate the challenge and I appreciate his uh, his uh, unrelenting faith, you know, that we can understand it. So before we really get into things today, uh, it's our custom to say the four line refuge prayer. So in the first two lines. Of the refuge prayer, uh, we're stating our intention to seek refuge from the three jewels. The Buddha as the teacher and an example of what we can become when we uncover the unlimited potential innate within each of us. We take refuge in the Dharma as the path that can lead to uncovering this potential. And we take refuge in the Sangha as the community of practitioners who accompany and support us on this path. In the second two lines, we state our action and our aspiration. These are two aspects of bodhicitta, or the mind of awakening. So first we say, by accomplishing the six perfections, which are perfect generosity, discipline, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. So in this line, we're saying what actions we'll take. And in the following line, we state our aspiration, or why we're doing all of this. Achieve the awakening, uh, to achieve awakening for the benefit of all beings. Awakening here refers to what we often call enlightenment or Buddhahood, a state that's completely free of delusion, completely purified of ignorance, in the full blossoming of all of our positive qualities. So today, let's say this prayer uh, three times in English. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma and in the noble Sangha. Through the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I accomplish, I'm sorry, it's hidden behind the thing. Uh, Here we go. May I achieve awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the noble Sangha. Through the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I achieve awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the noble Sangha. Through the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I achieve awakening for the benefit of all beings. And now I'll I'll say a short prayer of my own. Okay, um, someone's asking if I can put the two book titles in the comments. I think uh, a little bit later. I'll say them once again just in case uh, I don't want to get too far off track. Karma, What It Is, What It Isn't, and Why It Matters, by Trelland Kyalgyam. And the future is open. Good Karma, Bad Karma, and Beyond Karma, by Chogyam Trungpa. And this will be on YouTube and Facebook later, too, if you want to check again. So the source for today's teaching is actually going to be a chapter from Kala Rinpoche's book, Luminous Mind. And the the title of this chapter is The Two Truths. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, He starts with a quote from Nagarjuna. So I'm going to read this quote and then uh, his introductory paragraphs. So The quote from Nagarjuna begins, the Buddha's teaching rests on two truths, conventional truth and ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction between them do not understand Buddha's profound truth. Ultimate truth cannot be taught without basis on relative truth. Without realization of the meaning of ultimate truth, enlightenment cannot be attained." And that's a quote from Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka Karika. And then Kalarubashe begins by saying, the mistaken belief that painfully conditions all beings in cyclic existence arises from ignorance. That ignorance is an absence of awareness about the actual emptiness of the mind and its productions. In fact, the mistaken belief is ignorance about the actual mode of existence of all things. All things, all phenomena, all objects of knowledge, that is, the external universe and all its beings. Everything we experience in terms of forms, sounds, flavors, odors, tangible objects, and objects of mental awareness. All we are and everything we can know manifests by the power of the mind's propensities, which are essentially empty. The mind is neither existent nor non-existent. Likewise, the phenomena it produces are neither completely illusory nor completely real. As we ordinarily experience them, they are relatively real. But from an ultimate perspective, that relative reality is illusory. So as I said, the title of this chapter is The Two Truths. And Kalarubuche explains that uh, all things can be viewed according to two levels of reality. Uh, They're ultimate and relative. And these are like two points of view. So relative view is conventionally true, but ultimately illusory. So conventions are true within certain settings or groups or uh, in, in the midst of a certain activity or something. So conventionally, our relative reality is true, but ultimately, it's illusory. And ultimate truth, or the ultimate view, is definitively true. So, and in, in uh, an imperfect analogy, as all analogies are, but uh, to, just to get an idea of like a relative view versus an ultimate view, uh, we're, we're all used to kind of how our space looks, you know, wherever we are. Uh, we know what it looks like from where we're sitting right now. We have a pretty good idea what it looks like maybe behind us. Um, but we have this one perspective we're seeing from right now. But I think we probably all had that sort of strange experience of like maybe laying on a bed and with our head lying off, you know, and we see the room upside down, you know, or maybe we're laying on the floor and we're seeing it from the floor up. And It's kind of a strange experience. It's like a new relative reality from this new perspective, you know, but it's also true, you know, conventionally it is. Uh, so generally we only notice things from our own perspective, you know, from our own place. So Kalar Rinpoche says all samsaric perceptions are experiences of relative truth. Nirvana, which is beyond illusion and suffering, is the level of ultimate truth. Experiences of beings uh, like us are relatively true, but ultimately they're illusory. For example, he uses the example of like uh, hell beings. So uh beings in hell realms uh experience this incredible suffering and uh to them it's very very real um you know from their own perspective it's real but ultimately that hell does not exist it's a projection a projection of a conditioned mind whose nature is actually emptiness so when we're talking about projection um i think an easy example of that is uh when we find a certain person to be unpleasant. you know Their personality is just not to our liking. It doesn't have to be an extreme example, uh, like someone who goes around like kicking animals or something. It can just be someone who rubs us the wrong way. And when we encounter people like this, we tend to think that that unpleasantness is emanating from that individual and not our own mind. But it is our own mind uh, that projects that unpleasantness you know, it's a projection. Uh, it's our own minds that is a projection of that unpleasantness. Someone else with a, a different perspective or, or view might find them to be thoroughly delightful. They likewise probably assume that that delightfulness emanates from that person, you know, and not themselves, too. But again, it's their own projection of delightfulness. So the other person is neither inherently unpleasant, or inherently delightful. It's just the projections of our own conditioned mind whose nature is, is actually empty. So Kala Rinpoche says specifically, suffering comes from not recognizing the emptiness of things, which results in our attributing to them a reality that they don't actually have. This grasping at things as real subjects, I'm uh, sorry, this grasping at things as real subjects us to painful experiences. So now, Kala Rinpoche is about to give us a couple of uh, several examples. And I think it would benefit us with these examples, uh, rather than me just saying them and moving on, I think it would be good for us to take a moment uh, to contemplate each of these examples. And when we contemplate something, it's, it's good to use this method of the three R's of contemplation, and those are review, recognize, and resolve. And what that means is, first we review the concept being described. We look it over in our mind. We kind of uh, question it, uh, test it. We review it until we recognize the second R. We recognize its truth for ourselves. The idea is not to, to just take it at face value. As you may know, the Buddha said, "Don't take my words just you know because I've said them. You know, don't accept them just because of that." Uh, he said, "If." Uh, you know, to examine the teachings like they were gold, you know, like you were going to purchase gold from somebody. You want to make sure it's authentic, you know, for yourself. So even if we're inclined to believe what's being said, we still should take time to review it, to examine it and test it so that we can generate a real and stable recognition of truth. Then once we have that recognition, we can move on to a resolution to act according to that truth of what we've just examined. In the case of our contemplations today, we can resolve to always recognize the illusory nature of appearances and to remember their nature is, is actually emptiness. So let me look real quick, just to make sure there's nothing in the comments. Nope, good. So an example, so the first example color shape Rinpoche uh, presents is that of a dream, particularly when somebody has a nightmare. A person in a dream, uh, in a nightmare particularly, um, is suffering, you know, is is something scaring them. Uh, they're disturbed, uh, but the dream we know has no reality outside of the dreamer's own conditioned mind. The dreamer's own um, karma uh, conditions what's happening in the dream, and the person suffers because they fail to recognize the nature of their experiences in that dream. They take the creations of their own mind to be a reality its own autonomous reality, Kalar Rinpoche says, and then frightened by their own projections, they suffer. So let's take just a moment to, uh, to contemplate that. And then, so the Buddha taught that all our experiences are, in general, illusory experiences that cannot be considered as either truly real or completely illusory. The Buddha uh, said, this is a great example, that the nature of all things in all appearances is like a reflection of of the moon on water. So let's take a minute to think about that one. So the moon on water is neither truly real nor completely illusory. So we can think of a relative truth uh, like this. It's like uh, the truth of, of appearances. And there's a couple more common examples of this. So I'll, I'll say each one and then kind of give a minute for us to think. Less than a minute, but you know what I mean. So um, those are, uh, so we can think of appearances, relative reality, relative truth, as being like a rainbow.
0: Relative
1: truth is like a shadow. Our relative experiences are like a mirage. Our relative experience is like a mirror image. Relative truth is also like an echo. So Kalorimpoche says, outside of simple appearance resulting from the functionality of interrelated factors, no thing has existence in, of, or by itself. It can really help us to understand this because, although we have no true existence, we—I'm uh, sorry—it can really help us to understand this because, although they have no true existence, we attach to all of these things as though they were real. The objective of the Buddha's teaching is to dissolve our fixation, which is the source of all illusions and is as tenacious as our own karmic conditioning. So the next section of this teaching, he he titled, Karma, Interdependence, and Emptiness. And I actually kind of took that for the title of this talk today. I did drop the emptiness, if you notice, because emptiness can be a little scary sometimes. But it doesn't need to be. And uh, hopefully, today will help uh, kind of put put it in a new light for you. So first, in terms of karma. Karma doesn't have any notion of um, destiny or predeterminism. Um, It's really just we reap what we sow and we experience the results of our actions. And this is important to remember because there was a time before the Buddha when karma did mean a kind of predetermination, where if you were born poor, it was because you were meant to be poor forever, you know, for that life. It was on this basis, at least in part, I think, that the caste system was justified and maintained. But what the Buddha actually introduced to the notion of karma was talking uh, not just about karmic causes, but also about karmic conditions. Trala Rinpoche says um, Buddha does not teach that there are linear causal relationships where a single cause can bring about a single effect. Buddha teaches that there are many causes in many conditions and always refers to causes and conditions in the plural, never just as cause and effect. Back to Kala Rinpoche, he says the notion of karma is closely connected with that of dependent arising or tendril in Tibetan. The chain of karma is also the interaction of tendril or interdependent factors whose causes and results mutually give rise to one another. So tendril in Tibetan means um, interaction, interconnection, interrelation, interdependence, or interdependent factors. And Kala says all of our experiences are tendril. That they are all events that exist because of the relationship between interrelated factors. In other words, they don't have any independent existence of their own this is essential to understanding dharma and in particular how the mind uh, transmigrates in samsara or cyclic existence so for an example of tendril um, he uses the example of a bell but i have a little gong here and he asks uh, what makes the sound of this gong Is it the body of the, of the bowl? Or is it the, the clapper or the, the thing that rings it? I should say the thing with which you strike it. Um, so is it the body? Is it the stick? Is it my hand that's moving the stick? Is it our ears that hear it? And the idea is that none of these things alone produces the sound. It's the interaction of all of those things. All of them are necessary for the sound of the bell to be perceived. And they uh, they are necessary uh, not in like one after the other, not in succession, but they have to be there simultaneously. And says, the sound is an event whose existence depends on the interaction of these elements. And that is tendril, when we talk about tendril. Similarly, he says, all conditioned lives, all samsaric phenomena, result from a multiplicity of interactions which belong to the 12 links of dependent origination. And these 12 factors give rise to each other mutually. Now, that's a whole other topic, the 12 links. uh, that we're not gonna have time to get into today, nor would I be at all prepared to teach. But um, you may have seen tankas of the wheel of life that depicts uh, the 12 links as uh, around a, a a wheel, a circle. And even though on that tanka, the 12 links are arranged and explained one by one in a clockwise direction, all 12 of those factors actually happen simultaneously. It's like the bell. And uh, it's not that uh, each factor causes the one that occurs, Next in time, you know, as we may explain it in time. Uh, but instead, they, it's, it's like with the bell, that all those uh, are simultaneous and coexistent. So all 12 factors have to be present at the same moment to produce uh, a conditioned existence. So the truth of appearances, uh, Kala Rinpoche says, uh, is uh, created by the bondage of dependent arisings in conventional or dualistic truth, also known as relative truth. So this is how we usually live, um, ruled by karma, taking the relative truth to be completely real. The empty nature of what seems to exist at the relative level uh, is what we call ultimate truth. So the nature of the relative appearances is ultimate truth, and truly understanding Uh, This is Kala Rinpoche's words. Truly understanding dependent arising allows us to go beyond the conditioning of the relative or conventional level and to attain the peace and freedom of unconditionality. When you completely understand dependent arising, you also understand emptiness, and that is freedom. That's a powerful statement. One more time. When you completely understand dependent arising, you also understand emptiness, and that is freedom. And the idea here is that um, you know this is another way to say that that, that uh, wisdom isn't separate from illusions. Kalarambhasi says that uh, this is why it is said that samsara and nirvana are not different and that a form of wisdom is latent in ignorance. Latent meaning like uh, it's there, but it's not yet manifest. It's it's, uh, concealed. He goes on to say, logic and reasoning ultimately lead to such statements, which appear to be contradictory and illogical. Logic and reasoning can go on ad infinitum. They are part of the samsaric process and ultimately lead to contradictions. Even so, since they are tools that can bring about the realization of the truth, they're useful and should not be rejected, even if they are eventually released at the time of realizing emptiness. But he cautions here uh, to beware of nihilism. Uh, the right view about emptiness is not nihilistic. So there are, uh, you know, nihilism can be associated with a uh, conceptualization of emptiness, you know, trying to conceive of emptiness, we start to think that nothing matters. The opposite of that would be eternalism, or what we call materialism, which is like believing that this relative truth is completely real, and that's the whole story. So all this stuff that we experience really, really matters, and that's the whole shebang. Uh, and this was demonstrated in the life of the Buddha, I think, you know, like in when we talk about him living in the palace, you know, and all the sensual pleasures um, of that royal life, you know, and he realized that there that wasn't going to be um, a path that would lead to the end of stu- suffering. He left that life and um, and kind of went the other way and went to this uh, uh, life of uh, asceticism. And then that didn't work either. So he found those two extremes. And then uh, his his great insight was the middle way, the middle way teachings. So uh, Kala Rinpoche says that uh, we cannot think that there is no real state of Buddhahood, that karma is empty. So there's no real reason to bother. This is actually worse than taking relative things to be truly existent. Nihilistic conceptions are a more serious mistake than the realist conceptions that take phenomena to exist as they appear. So the correct understanding of emptiness actually lies between the two extremes of eternalism and nihilism. And this is what we mean by the middle way. The middle way doesn't reject our appearances, but it doesn't endorse them as really real either, like we usually think they are. It uh, recognizes their actual uh, mode of arising. And the middle way view eliminates wrong ideas and ultimately allows us to go beyond conceptualized notions about reality. But, uh, but beware, Kala Rinpoche says, to conceive of emptiness closes the door to liberation. And he provides a couple of quotes too. He says, uh, uh, Saraha said, to consider the world as real is a brutish attitude to consider it as empty is even more savage. And Nagarjuna said, "Those who conceive of emptiness are incurable." So, attachment—you know—we uh, know from the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching of the Buddha—attachment um, is the cause of our suffering. So the Buddha taught that that uh, our experience in cyclic existence is one of suffering. Um, we could say that suffering is a part of life, but we can also say that you know it, it, there's some bit of suffering in everything we uh, experience in this. You know, it, it, when we're a, when we have a conception of self and other, as long as that's happening, there's some kind of suffering present. That's the character of of samsara. So um, when we suffer, a lot of times we say, uh, oh, so to the four noble truths: suffering is a part of life, uh, suffering has a cause. That cause is attachment. Knowing that, um, that suffering has a cause, if we remove the cause, we can achieve the third noble truth, which is the cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a path to achieve that cessation of suffering. So knowing that attachment is the cause of suffering, um, a lot of times we say it's attachment to a conception of the self. Uh, but another way to look at that, um, is that we frequently can be too attached to either a relative view or an ultimate view. Um, we can be too attached to the idea that uh, everything we see and hear um, and think is is true and, and completely existent on its own, or we can be too attached to the fact that everything is empty. Um, and there was a conversation that started in a recent Uh, Torma workshop that I did uh, where we got into a really good discussion about this, and it's something that um, has come up for me uh, a couple times in in some kind of dramatic ways uh, in terms of, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening right now have had this experience too, in terms of uh, having uh, too many uh, bugs or mice or termites. Or uh, beings in, you know, a space uh, that we would classify as an infestation. You know, things that, you know, uh, according to local codes or laws, are are probably, you know, it's not legal to have that sort of a thing in a going on in a in a dwelling, you know, or in a, a place of business. It's against housing codes, and we've had situations like that. Um, it's happened in Dharma centers. It probably happened in most Dharma centers. It happened at KTC when I was on the board at KTC. We had um, a lot of mice and a lot of cockroaches. And I know it's happened at, uh, in some form or another at KTD. I know it's happened at Taisitu to Rinpoche's centers. Um, and when that happens, <clears throat> how do you deal with that, you know? I mean, that's, I think, one of the first things people think of when they think of Buddhists is, is protecting life. And that is extremely important. But what do you do when you're in that situation where you have a dharma center that um, is uh, has has the negative is experiencing some of or at least the beginning of the potentially really negative effects of an infestation of mice or uh, bugs or whatever? You know, um, there's reasons why uh, they're they're dangerous to our health. Um, doesn't mean that one life is more important than another, per se. But um, there's there's all these different interrelated factors. You know, uh, there's protecting a dharma center, which is a great benefit to a city, you know, and to an area. Um, it's a place where practitioners uh, learn and get closer to Buddhahood and thereby uh, increase their ability to benefit beings exponentially. Uh, there's also um, responsibility to, uh, perhaps like, uh, if it's a rental building, you know, maybe you have a responsibility to take care of the space. In any case, there's, like I said, there's building codes that have to be followed and the Buddha said, and the Karmapa even recently at a visit to KTD said, we have to follow our local laws that that's like essential. Um, so there's all these interrelated, um, issues, you know, and it's not easy. And there are, um, you know, when I've seen this happen a couple times now, and there's uh, it, there's always people who, who refuse or are, are shocked by the fact that um, there may need to be an extermination. And in fact, in these cases um, at, at uh, KTC, um, and I know at KTD as well, there were situations where we, we had to exterminate, you know, and that was um, what, um, Rinpoché actually said, "We have to do. You know, it's not easy. Nobody's happy about it. And in those circumstances, practically speaking, if you find yourself in that circumstance, his advice to us at KTC was to, um, you know, say a lot of prayers, do pujas dedicated to the the animals, um, and to uh, walk around and throw blessed rice, saying mantras, and 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 you know, imploring them to leave. You know, before." Uh, before we did the exterminating. Um, and it's a tough situation. You know, it's just, it's a really tough situation. And um, I think this kind of gets at this idea. This is a kind of a real world example of what we've been talking about today. This idea that um, karma isn't actually the end of the story. You know, we can't, uh, We we just, our situation is not such that we can win with with karma you know we can't win the game just by only collecting good karma we don't have a situation where uh, you could even say it's not our karma to only collect good karma (laughs) you know like we can't we're in a situation where we get these mixed mixed results a lot of time we get these situations where there's going to be a little bit of good and a little bit of bad and the buddha was in those situations too you know there's a situation a story about um it's just coming to my head right now i don't know if i want to tell it because i may not know it well yeah, we'll skip that one. I don't want to go up too far off the reservation. But, um, yeah, so it's a tricky situation, you know, and and in, and everybody has the best intentions. And, you know, but sometimes we have to make these hard choices and sometimes we have to um, be faced with these decisions where there's some, you know, we have the best of intentions and we're, we're working towards good karma, but there's going to be some bad karma that comes along with it. Um, and it's those times where Particularly, I think, where recognizing the middle way you know, is, is really important. Because the whole story isn't karma. That's not the whole story. That's sort of the manifestation of emptiness. That's the way our appearances arise. But, um, but we have to be able to recognize the emptiness in things, too. So um, beings who attain enlightenment, um, their experience uh, is, is still kind of continues. They still, I've, I've heard it said that like when a be when an enlightened being walks into a room, they see what we see. Um, but they're not attached to it. And they're not, um, under the impression that all of that stuff is really real. They see it as illusory. They understand it to be so. Um, they understand the actual mode of existence of things. And so that's really what we're going for. Karma is, is really useful for us. Um, and, and understanding it, um, is really important, but understanding what it really is and what its true nature is that emptiness is really kind of the key. So what we talked about today is, um, is a good, uh, analytical sort of conceptual view of this stuff. Uh, but emptiness is not something that we can, uh, conceptualize as we already said, you know, conceiving of emptiness, um, uh, Those who conceive of emptiness are incurable, Nagarjuna said. Um, But we can experience it. And that's really the idea. That's when we when we're working with meditation, uh, not all forms of meditation, but but most meditation um, has uh, in it the potential for us to have an experience of emptiness. We can we can experience it. We can't really talk about it accurately. Um, We can't conceive of it, but we can experience it. So the things we talked about today are great, and um, I hope they're helpful to you in um, thinking about the world and how things work and your experiences. Um, but what that ought to lead to is getting in the cushion and um, doing the practices that your whoever's guiding your practice, whoever teacher you're working with, whatever they've given you. That's how we really start to experience emptiness and having those experiences of emptiness. Um, that's Really great fuel for the path, and that that helps us to recognize emptiness in all appearances it as we see it if we 're not trying it 's not particularly easy. We usually don 't stumble on a view of emptiness um, it 's probably happened somewhere i don 't know, but um, but it is unlikely right i mean there's lots of us who want to have that experience. And it's, it's tough to get, you know, so we have to do our practice. That's the way to do it. And um, to say that another way, all this talk um, is not what's going to get us there. You know, it, it can provide a ground, you know, upon which to put our practice, you know, and to begin our practice. But um, like I said, said in our retreat, Carter Rinpoche in, in my three-year retreat said, um, no one has ever studied their way to enlightenment so uh that's something to be aware of that what we're talking about today um and and what the the uh sort of request is you know what i think kaloramshay is asking us to do to be able to um, recognize the true mode of existence of things um getting that conceptually is a beginning but achieving it will happen through our practice through our uh, diligent practice so um I think that's all I have to say today. So uh, go get on the cushion, I guess. Any questions? Uh, let's see. Thank you, Karma Jim Somo. Anybody else have any questions? I'm kind of scared, because <laughs> this is a tough topic. I hope I did all right. But I'll try if there are questions.
0: Well, if not, um,
1: if not, um, I will say that uh, Columbus KTC is uh, has a building. Uh, we don't actually have it yet, uh, but we we've, we've been in it and we did uh, some tours a couple of weeks ago, which was really cool uh, to see it from the inside and. Um, the building is uh, is getting close, and you can still donate to support uh, the construction of Columbus KTC at columbusktc.org slash donate. Uh, we're really close to the finish line. I think a lot of the funds now, uh, most of them, or if not all of them, are going to, to shrine costs. And I'll also mention that I have a website, llamaadam.com, and I try to put the talks up there. and you know, try to be more active with with making posts and news news announcements and things like that. So. um, All right, well. um, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I'm just really honored to be able to to talk to you today Um, as kind of really just a beginner. uh, My teachers uh, are incredible, and I try my best to uh, share what they shared with me, um, Kim Carter-Ribbushet, and Lama Kathy and Lama Tom, and Holiness Karmapa. Um, so I praise them, and I make endless offerings to them for the benefit of beings. If I made any mistakes today uh, in my talk, or if I confused you at all, I, I, I confess this. And I apologize. Uh, it's only my own mistakes. I also rejoice in all the good works of our teachers, and I pray that they remain for a long time and continue to turn the wheel of dharma and uh, dedicate all this merit to the benefit of beings. And I'll say a short dedication prayer. By the merit accomplished here today, may all beings obtain the omniscience of Buddhahood and defeat our common enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, From the ocean of samsara may we free all beings may we free all beings may we free all beings thank you see you all soon
0: thank you for joining us for this week's dharma talk we hope you enjoyed the podcast if you did please subscribe rate and review it on itunes To learn more about the Columbus Karma Karmatexam Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.